This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie Cherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back with you to talk about movies. What's up, Danielle? What's up with you? I don't know. Pretty much nothing. <laughs> deep, in, deep in that winter. Yeah. That winter thought. I had a thought, and I'm not sure if I'm being rational or not, so I want to talk it out with you. Mm-hmm. Okay, on the week of Thanksgiving, let's go. Well, and maybe this is why I'm thinking about it, because I'm thinking about, you know, giving and and kindness and, you know, avoiding my family and hanging out with other families. And um, I was thinking about how I used to volunteer a lot, um, particularly with uh, the Big Sisters program. Mm -hmm. And Big Brothers, Big Sisters is great. Uh, If you've never looked into it, you totally should. Um, At the time of this recording, they're they're great. (laughs) <laughs> yes, at the time. <laughs> but uh, I loved it. And I did I did it when I lived in Alaska. Um, I was part of a school program. So you would basically go and just spend an hour with a kid at school. And then we just loved hanging out so much that we just kind of morphed it into the regular big sister thing where we would hang out on the weekends or like hang out after school. And she was so cool. And like my little... Um, is now like we kept in touch and she went to college and Whoa. you know now she's in her mid like she went to Juilliard and she's in her mid 20s and like Damn. she's just really cool and, and like very proud of her your um, influence I, your influence not even she was just always the coolest kid and i feel but i just really i miss you know that that cliche of like when you volunteer it gives more back to you than than you're giving it's true in so many ways like i always just felt like better about the world after I'd connected with someone else or like, you know, did something for somebody else. So I was thinking about getting back into volunteering and then realizing, I don't know if I'm fit to volunteer anymore. Because the last time I did it, I had an office job. And now I've got this podcast with all these thoughts out here. And I've got my job and all the stuff I write and my book. And I'm like, who's going to let me hang out with a kid? Nobody. Okay. First of all, they, they do deep background checks. That's not the problem. It's just like if anyone listens to anything I've said or reads anything I've written or watches anything I've produced, they're going to be like, no, <laughs> you can't hang out with this lady. I Listen, I completely understand what this impulse, right? Because I think of that too. I'm like, if I like scope out on my life, I'm like, oh, I just cuss a bunch on a podcast. I program <laughs> cannibal films for a living or whatever. And it's like depraved, right? <laughs> However, like, I'm just saying if I was the mother of a child, you know, and a child was, you know, able to have access to somebody to hang out with and to have like, you know, quality time, developmental time. 
Yeah. I would much rather have that person be you than some boring office person. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> boring. I look, I was a boring office person. It's also fine, but <laughs> it, I'm okay. I'm not saying if you sell insurance that you shouldn't be the shaping the future <laughs> leaders of America. But I'm just saying from, like, a creative standpoint, I mean, you have, like, one of the most interesting lives out of anybody I've ever met. And even if you were freaking unemployed right now, you've had just so much experience in life that you could, like, pass on to younger people. I mean, you you fought a fucking bear in Alaska. (laughs) Like, what— kid is not going to be, like, impressed by that. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I can teach you how to run away from one. That's <laughs> for sure. We can tra- go out to that track and start doing laps. And I'll teach you how to run for your damn life. But yeah, it's wild. It's just wild to think of, like, how I, w- I would like to do that. And then I was like, well, maybe I can volunteer with older people. And it's the same thing. They don't want to hear me cursing. And I, here's the other thing. Like, I don't talk to children. Like, I know how to talk to kids. You know, like, yeah. I'm not, like, a total ghoul, but I also don't do that baby talk thing or, like, talk, pander down. Like, I don't pander to them or talk down to them or anything. So, like, if they ask me something real, I will give them a real answer. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's training and there's all kinds of, you know, take courses and, like, they teach you how to be comfortable in this situation because a lot of people, I think, don't know how to talk to kids and may, maybe want to volunteer with kids and are like, I don't know what to do with these motherfuckers. See, right there. Mother- I don't do these motherfuckers. <laughs> Calling them motherfuckers? you hired. Here you go. Here's five. Take five kids. <laughs> Have a handful. Knock yourself out. Parents are so exhausted right now. They're like, yes, do it. We don't give a shit. You can curse in front of this kid. You can chop lines in front of this kid. We don't care. <laughs> Put them in front of an actual bear and do nothing. Like, we don't care. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But that's also part of it is, like, I feel like, you know, I've got my shit together and I'm pretty well adjusted and I'm, you know, successful enough to be, like, happy. Like, I'm not, you know, and that has nothing to do with finances, of course, but, like, I'm successful in my life in that, like, I feel like I have something to offer. Um, But I just also know how I am. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, oh, God, I don't know if I want a stranger's child to be like, I heard your podcast. I read your book. <laughs> Look, I, I will say I I have this I used to have the same fear as maybe you do about talking to children. Because for the longest time, I was never around kids at all. Like, you know, my sister is the only person in our family that has kids. And before she had them, I'd never talked to kids. And I was always like, man, I don't know. I think I'm gonna like I'm just going to let all these cuss words fly and I'm just going to be like this. I'm going to be in my own head about it. And I'm just like, ooh, who am I? I'm talking like a baby and ugh, like that's so stupid. But now that I have nephews, like, I don't know. I feel like I was definitely overthinking it for a long time because now when I communicate with them, it's just pretty much me without saying motherfucker every five seconds like I normally do or whatever, you know, it's just that thing. And sometimes, hell, sometimes it happens. And (laughs) my my sister's like, she just gives me that look like, ugh, you know. Actually, you want to know a story? I'm going to tell you a a really, this was fucking hilarious, but I'm sure my (laughs) sister was like, absolutely not. 
So this happened not too long ago, like maybe a month ago when I was down in Florida visiting my family. So my sister went, I don't know where she went. Maybe she went to go pick up food, but I was in her house with my two nephews and we were just sitting around the kitchen table. And uh, one of them asked me, "What's what's the A word, auntie? And I was like, the A word. Like, uh, I need more. <laughs> I need more context here. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you mean A-S-S? Like that word? And they were just like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, they don't really know how to spell. I'm like, they sort of do, <laughs> but like, so I made this judgment call that I was like, yes, I'm going to spell out this stuff, right? So then I was like, well, there's A-S-S and then there's A-S-S-H-O-L-E, Depending on that. You're literally giving them a list now. They're like absolute smoke coming out of their pencils while they're like writing down all these words. That is ex- literally what happened. <laughs> so, they, and then, you know, they're like, what's the F word? And I'm like, F-U-C-K, don't ever say it. It's really bad. Oh and then, my you know, God. So then Henry, my oldest nephew, who's seven, disappears for like 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> and what, goes into like their office or whatever. And then, then my, by that time, my sister had come home. So then, cut to later in the day, you know, like much later in the day, I, I, I left their house, went back to my parents' house. My sister calls me and FaceTimes me and she's like, look what I just found crumpled up in the garbage can. No! Yes, and it was this piece of paper with this like little kid handwriting and it was A-S-S, A-S-S-H-O-L-E, F-U-C-K, and like a drawing of some weird fucking, I don't know if it was an actual butthole, but it was like some, something weird. (laughs) And my sister was like, I swear to God, I was gone for like 30 minutes. (laughs) And now I have this crumpled up piece of paper in a garbage can that has like a butthole drawing and then like all these cuss words spelled out. Please... Please tell me you kept and framed it, please. I I was like, are you gonna keep that? Because I want it. But yeah, she- I would frame it and give it to that kid for his high school graduation present. <laughs> Be like, don't forget who taught you everything you know that's useful. But also, like in that little kid way, that was like, I'm gonna do something bad, and then I'm just gonna crumple it up and put it in a garbage can, and nobody's gonna find it. And I'm just like, oh, he wrote asshole on a piece of paper, and then crumpled it up. So look, you're saying you can't be. A volunteer? I'm like, look what I'm doing. I'm not even doing anything. And I'm apparently a terrible guardian. So couldn't be any worse than that, right? Your sister's like, I was gone for a second. (laughs) Like, I was not even gone for long enough for them to learn one of these words. (laughs) And include a drawing. That is the drawing is the best part. Like, I love this kid's he's got some lateral thinking going on. Holy shit, that is fucking great. Well, but I was like, okay, this is how stupid I am, because I'm not a parent. I don't know anything about developmental. I was truly like, there's no way he's going to spell out these words. He's never going to remember how to spell them enough in enough time to write them down. Because I was like, surely he doesn't know how to spell. No, he spelled it all correctly. Well, because you spelled it for him. All he had to do was remember what you were (laughs) saying. What you were saying. He's like, look, I got the ASS part. That's easy. Then she added H O L E. So all he had to remember was hole and fuck, and he well, was there. So now it's like <laughs> I, I under okay, I underestimated 
his ability to retain knowledge within a 10-minute span. I don't know. I'm oh, so God. dumb. And now, and now I'm like, well, shit. If I'm sitting here around, say, I mean, I've been saying things in front of them. Maybe they've retained it, and maybe I'm, yeah, <laughs> maybe they have a secret diary in their bedrooms where they're writing down, like, you know, me talking about how, you know, this motherfucker and that motherfucker. I don't know. Now I'm horrified. Basically, is what I'm saying. Look, so. the holidays are upon us. You need to give them each blank journals and be like, just write down any bad word you have that you can think of. <laughs> Just keep it in this little book, and then again, you you snatch that book when they're like ten, and you give it back to them when they're eighteen. Yeah, I mean, I would love like listen. I mean, I think a lot of this is filtered through you and I's own experience. And I'm like, yeah. if somebody gave me a piece of paper at eighteen to be like, remember when you were seven and you just wrote out asshole and drew an asshole, and weren't you so precocious and charming back then? I would be like. Oh my god, I was. I was pretty fucking cool. I was fucking sick as hell. How come you guys <laughs> let me get less sick than this as I got older with all your rules? Clearly I was born rad. <laughs> I could see you like at 18 being like, remember when you were 70 and you like wrote the Dawkin logo and fucking <laughs> <laughs> The first the first time you did that weird S. I wish I still had my trapper keeper from the first time I did that weird S. <laughs> The weird S that you can actually make into a chain that goes into infinity. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Give me the, I used to be so cool. I was the coolest kid. Oh yeah. Life will wear you down. The last time a friend, well, not, yeah, I guess it was the last time. I had a friend come to visit, a couple of friends come to visit from the city with their kid who was seven at the time. And she's a very cool kid. And I definitely, I always, whenever kids come to my house, and I want to talk to their parents. I just give them jobs. Yes. So I pulled her aside and I was like, I have, I've been waiting for you to come. I have a very important job that only you can do. And I asked her to shelve some of my books that were still in boxes at the time. Ooh. And she was having the time of her life. Yeah. Just like pulling books out and putting them on the shelf. And I'm like, yep, knock yourself out. And then I gave her 20 bucks. And her parents were like, you could have given her a lollipop. You didn't have to give her 20 bucks. But I gave her 20 bucks, and then we had a very frank discussion about how women should always earn their own money. Hell yeah. Love and that. And negotiate. I'm like, you should negotiate for more. So, so right before I gave her the money, I'm like, okay, that was great. You did such a good job. How much do you think I should pay you for this? And she was like, I don't know. And I was like, mm, how about $10? And she was like, okay. And I was like, nope, you always got to negotiate. Don't always go for the first offer. I'm going to give you, tw I'm like, I could go up to 20. So let's start this again. I'm like, how much do you think you, you should do for that? I, I, should, I should give you for that job. And she was like, $15? And or she, said, she said $10. And I was like, mm, I can go up to 15. And she was like, all right, maybe $16? Ooh. <laughs> and then I was like, mm, I can go up to 20. So I was like teaching her how to negotiate a salary, basically. Yes, love it. And so I gave her the money. And her parents were like, please, like, you do not have to give our child money because we're not going to give her money for doing anything in our house. So we don't want to like instill <laughs> that in her that that's a possibility. And I'm like, no, it was a job. Like she did a, a task. And I, we talked about how to earn money because I feel like kids need to know that, especially yes. young women. Yes. Which also ties into my movie today. Hell yeah. But then she was like, she was like, well, I was in your library while I was putting away books. I saw that you have this really cool axe. And I do. I have, like, this little gold hatchet mm -hmm. <laughs> that I got in a garage sale. And it's sitting on one of my shelves. And she was like, can I hold it? 
without missing a beat. I was like, yeah. And so I just handed her a fucking hatchet. And then I looked at her, looked at this little seven-year-old kid holding the hatchet. And I was like, actually, on second thought, maybe you shouldn't hold that. (laughs) Her eyes got like as big as saucers. Because no one's ever handed this kid a weapon before. (laughs) And I was like, here's 20 bucks and a weapon. You have imprinted on this child's life in the best way. (laughs) But I'm like, yeah, because I thought it would be funny to see. I let her do it. Yeah. Look, I'm going to tell you right now. You are absolutely the best person to be in front of kids. (laughs) Like, (laughs) for my money, are you kidding me right now? I think... I mean, I'm sure we're going to get, like, about a thousand emails with people who will fucking agree with me. Like, if I was that age and some awesome lady who had books at her house and was, like, a rad person gave me $20 and a fucking axe, I'd be like, I'm modeling my entire life around this woman. Period. <laughs> Period. Well, if she grows up to be a lumberjack, then I will I will take my flowers. <laughs> no, because that is, like, truly... I mean, to your point, like, I remember there being, like, specific, like, older women that would come around when I was yeah. that age, seven, eight, ten, or whatever. Like, when I was, when I was really young and we were living in South Carolina, th- we had this neighbor who was a single woman. She waited tables... And she looked pretty much like Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. Like, she was just basically, like, she was German. She had, like, pretty... I think she probably had tattooed on eyeliner, you know? She had that, like, look to her. And she was, like... She was, like, a... I think she had, like, a a kid, and he was in college. Like, basically, like, this type of person that I never came across, because all I did was hang out with my mom and dad. So I'm like, oh, who is this, like, cool sort of modern lady with no husband and, uh, you know, an older kid and she made her own money and she lived next door. And I was like, uh, even though she didn't give me an axe or anything amazing like that, but she was just like that person that I was like, I was fascinated with her. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that's the thing is that like a lot of little kids are like, you know, they don't really know a lot of people. And so if you were in their lives, I think that you would be that person for them. That's true. I definitely could be. I definitely could be. And I I mean, I wouldn't give any kid an ax. I gave this kid an ax because I've known her since the day she was born. (laughs) And I've been friends with her parents for like 20 years. But like, yeah, I think I could be like kind of a cool cool person for a kid to hang out with and learn stuff about. And I remember, again, with my my other little... Um, we would write things down. Like I taught her how to journal and I taught her how to like, like, oh, you can write all your feelings down and nobody else has to see it. And yeah. like, I have something to offer. But yeah, I just, I just, I flash back to everything I've ever said whenever I consider volunteering. And then I also flash back to like, well, how, how do I act around people these last few years now that I'm like not used to socializing and I'm still very much myself and I had another friend's kid, my, well, this is my goddaughter. She came over and she was eight. I mean, like, she's eight now. And she came over the last time she was here and she, was, <laughs> she said something. And I said, no. And she said, that's not very nice. And I said, actually, it is. And you should get used to saying no to people mm. if you don't want to do something. 
And I said, let's practice. And so we just practiced screaming no. And I would just like give her questions like, can I play with that toy? And she was like, no. And I was like, yeah. And I would high five her. And then her mom was like, please don't teach my kid to shout at other kids when she should be sharing her toys. And I'm like, well, what if she doesn't want to? She should say no. (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing I don't have kids, but I think I'm good with kids. Yes, you're giving them, like, life lessons. I mean, honestly, the most that I ever do with my friends' kids when they come over is like, hey, look, we both have Crocs. That's cool. (laughs) I have a whole wall that I let them draw on. Like, I just have a graffiti wall for kids. And I'm like, you can just write whatever you want on this wall. Just tag it up. And so every time they come over, they're like, can I have a marker? And I'm like, yep, here you go. (laughs) Holy shit. Dude, you're... You're, like, the only person that should, like, people should be taking their kids to your house (laughs) on a bus. (laughs) Like, there should be, like, a little bus that's, like, Danielle's house camp or something. And, like, kids should just get out one by one with their sack lunch and be like, holy fuck, we're going to have, like, the best time of our lives. We're going to write on a wall. We're going to look at an axe. We're probably going to make some money. We're going to learn how to yell. I mean, come on. I'm putting a rope swing upstairs in the the guest bedroom that, like, my friend's kids will probably sleep in. And I let one of them skateboard upstairs. She was like, this is a big room. And I'm like, try it out. Just sk-. She's like, I can skateboard in the house. And I was like, you can in this house. Listen. <laughs> you're, you are very fond of thinking that you're not the right person for the job when you are the only person for the job. Does that make sense? <laughs> We started this conversation with being like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should be around kids to being like, oh, I have a skate park in my house for them when they come over. <laughs> what the fuck? And I think, and it's, it's a constant negotiation for me because I'm, I know for a fact that they're going to go home and their parents are going to be like, don't do anything that you did in that house in this house. Like, you cannot skateboard in here. If you put one mark on the wall, I will fucking throw you out the window. Like, I'm, te- I'm just teaching them bad habits, but I'm like, you can come to my house and be free. I don't give a shit because I don't have to deal with you. So you just come here for a couple hours and be free. I don't care. Dude, that is the fucking fiber of the ante is your <laughs> shit. Like, they're not supposed to fucking be their parents. Like, that's the thing. They come to auntie's house to literally do everything you just said. Totally. And you will oh, always yeah. be revered. And you will always be talked about because you're fun and you have fun shit. Then they go back to their parents' house and the parents are just like, nope, you're, we're not giving any money. You're not, <laughs> you're going to have zero joy here. It's just a constant grind. And they will literally sit around and be like, oh my God, I cannot wait to go back to Danielle's house. I cannot wait. Oh, okay. I gave, I gave, um, this is again, my, one of my friend's kids came to visit this summer. And they were just here for a couple hours. We just, we just wanted to talk. And I was, and she was asking about the yard. Like, she was very curious about the barn and, like, the yard. And I was like, go walk around, but be careful of the groundhog holes. Um, you know, like, look down where you're walking. And so she was walking around. She's like, can I climb this tree? And I'm like, yeah, climb the tree. I don't care. And then she got she climbed the tree, jumped back down. And then she was like, do you have, like, worms? And I'm like, I don't know. And I gave her a trowel. And I'm like, start digging. I don't know. So she was just digging in the yard for, like, an hour. And, the, and my friends were like, she's going to make holes. And I'm like, have you seen the size of the groundhogs here? She can't do anything close to the damage those little motherfuckers have done. Just dig a hole, find a worm. I don't care. Dude, I imagine, like, your place to a child is like that movie, My Life as a Dog, where he, like, <laughs> g- 
he goes ah! he goes to his aunt and uncle's house and it's like this beautiful you know fun Swedish happy town oh, where yeah. they're building like you know a room to listen to records in uh, out in the barn and you know there's like all these characters and like oh, I mean my God. that is so magical that's like such a magical experience and and then you know they'll like I said they're always gonna remember it and they're always gonna want to go there to the point where maybe if when they become teenagers you might find a few people on your doorstep with with <laughs> sleeping bags and being like I'm over it I'm coming to live here in the in the magical groundhog land <laughs> where I can, where I can tag the walls and dig a grave <laughs> <laughs> where I can hop on a rope swing and skateboard inside. I mean, I when I say this shit out loud, I'm like, am I okay? Am I a deep? Like, am I okay? Am I okay as a human being? Like, I just co- let children do whatever they want in my house. My niece was here. She's six and she's very smart. Yeah. And she was looking at the photos on the wall. And I've been fighting with my brother, so I've been talking to him lately. And that's mm. her dad. And um so I gave. <laughs> she was pointing at the pictures of our, of us in high school, like our high school photos uh, that my grandma had had me put up for her. And she goes, "Oh, who's that?" And I said, "That's your dad." And she was like, "Oh." And I said, "Yep, that's your ugly father." And she started laughing, and she was like, "My ugly father." And I pointed at my picture, and I'm like, "I'm like, who's this?" And she's like, "That's you." And I said, "Yes, that's your beautiful aunt Danielle." So we went back and forth for a couple of minutes, and then she called her mom in the room. And she pointed at the picture and she goes, that's my ugly father and that's my beautiful Aunt Danielle. And yes. her mom looked at me like, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where she gets it from. But yes, that's what we've been doing for the last 20 minutes is me teaching her to call her father ugly because Again. I'm mad at him right now. <laughs> Again. This is, this, is, this is exactly how we're supposed to be living. We're supposed to be doing this. As... As women with no ch- children of our own, but with children in our family, we are that. We are the auntie, okay? You're Completely. supposed to be saying it. So, All right. I love my auntie role. I really love it. I love it. I love yeah. when they come over and they're like, can I read this book? And I'm like, yeah. And my friends are like, I don't think a kid should be reading, like, the Executioner's song. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. When I was a kid, I would just go to the library and pick stuff out. As long as she's going to understand it. She just, she just wants to see my shit. Like, she doesn't want to actually read it. She just wants to pick one of my books off the shelf and, like, feel cool holding it. Yeah. Look, I mean, it, I have watched Hoarders Buried Alive with my nephews. <laughs> like, I I have done some pretty questionable things. And at, at a certain point, I'm just like, I got to be the yin to the yang of your mom Exactly. And dad. So this is what's going to happen. If you don't like it, I mean, I'm not doing anything crazy, but I'm just yeah. saying in my world is a different world where, absolutely, you know, now you will reference hoarders buried alive when it comes to your bedroom. That's like now the thing that they, <laughs> they started doing was that they start like, you know, they'll trash their room and then, oh uh, you know, they'll be like, oh, it's, it's like hoarders buried alive in here. And I'm like, don't <laughs> even, don't okay, is- even say that. That is the coolest auntie thing I've ever... You taught these kids how to play at being hoarders. That's incredible. I was like, do do not watch this show without me. Um, Don't reference this ever. Don't don't tell anybody that I I sat you in front of this TV show. And don't reference it around anybody else. 
<laughs> no, it is, it's a psychological condition. We have to respect it. Yes. But with me, we can at least watch it and learn about it. I right. know. I feel like, yes, come to my house. You can hold a hatchet. You can draw on the walls. You can skateboard upstairs. You can dig in the yard. I don't care. I don't care. Look, I like I said at the beginning, I think that you are the only person that children should be around. And that and that is final. I've made my final decision. Well, I appreciate it. I am so looking forward to volunteering again. Yes. Maybe I can teach a little kid like devil horns or something and how to listen to Metallica, like the difference <laughs> between Norwegian metal and <laughs> Swedish metal. Like I'll get back out there and re- really teach what I know. I'm telling you. it's. I, I think if I had my own kids, they would be pretty much living with you at this point. So I appreciate it. And I also think if it, this is a story for another time, but we'll end here. If you ever have a chance to teach a child who's just learned how to talk and communicate, if you have a chance to teach them about the man, you should absolutely do it because they will look at every cop, firefighter, park <laughs> ranger, and start calling them the man. And it's wonderful. From my perspective, it cracks me up every time. I've taught almost every child I know. Like, who's that? That's the man. What's the man do? The man ruins our party. And I had a friend who was like, "Um, I put money in a parking meter and my kid asked me if I was paying the man. Like, you have to stop. And I was like, all right. I don't see a problem at all. Again, I'll say it. I don't see a problem. Speaking of the man, or maybe the woman... I I still can't believe this is our theme this week. I, I can't either. The, the theme this week, it was definitely a group effort where we were just making ourselves laugh, yes. and then we just stuck with it. Yes. Okay. So why don't you tell the folks what our theme is? I mean, thank you. After I just spent 20 minutes talking about how... <laughs> Children are going to listen to me on this podcast and I won't be able to volunteer. Now I got to say this theme and here, and I'm going to do it because I can't believe this is our theme. (laughs) 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 All right. I'm going to get it together and tell you that our theme this week is CEO, cunt on charge of office. (laughs) Oh, my God. Why are we like this? (laughs) Why are we like this? Honestly, like, so this, so basically, you know, Danielle and I really wanted to talk this week about the concept of, like, the lady boss, right? The woman in charge. And this is not, like, a new concept. We've talked about this in previous episodes. But, like, for whatever reason, we were like, let's talk about, like, this particular thing, and then what are we going to call it? And then we just sort of gravitated to the term CEO, and then we are like, what could CEO stand for? And we're like, cunt in charge of office? I think it's the the E-N that makes me laugh so hard, because it's like on Vogue. (laughs) (laughs) Like the French French way. (laughs) Exactly. But it's the fancy way of saying it, cunt on charge of office. Yeah, there's um, it's refined but filthy, which is again, oh my god, probably our brand. And also, your 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 nephews, if they ever ask you what the c word is, I don't find a problem with the c word. I think we yeah, are either a little bit too because I'm not a person who likes to sugarcoat everything, 
And I think some people really are cunts in the worst way and in the best way. And I think depending on where you come from culturally, this word has either already made you turn this episode off or you're like, yeah, I totally get it. But I will say this. If you don't get it, don't listen. We don't need to hear. Like, we've got the whole cultural background of what it means and how how it can be perceived. You don't have to tell us. If you don't like it, just stop listening. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but I think we're using it more in that that positive social way that it's been, like, reclaimed, I guess. Yes. That's how I felt, honestly. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it. Phonetically, I have... More problem with the P word than I do with the C word, if you know what I'm saying. Same. Same. Especially when it comes to, like, well, anything, really. But especially when it comes to insults. Like, I feel like we started, like, our insults socially have become, like, we've taken the teeth out of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to call someone a Karen. I want to call them a cunt. I want to call them a bitch. Yeah. Like, that person's acting like a fucking asshole. Why can't I just say that? Look at this fucking asshole at Trader Joe's yelling at someone in line. Exactly. Like, it's punchy. I, I I have no problem with the word. Again, we know some people do. If it ain't for you, turn the episode off. We'll see you next week. But I'm just saying that, like, for our purposes, it's that notion of, like, the female boss, the woman in charge who is, you know, in, in the eyes of the patriarchy is a cunt, is a bitch, is somebody yep. that, you know, is, you know, somebody to hate and to even hate more than a male boss sometimes, you know? Yeah. And women are often in that double bind situation where it's like, okay, we'll let you be in charge, but we're going to talk shit about you the whole time and not respect you. And you're going to be called a cunt anyway. Right, right. And it's that it's that concept, too, of, like, the female boss having to work twice as hard to be half as good type of thing, where mm-hmm. there's all these expectations that are floated onto women who are in charge of things. And, you know, I mean, we've seen this so much, like, in the past you know, freaking decade with, like, politics and just social changes and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. To me, I think that our movies this week are kind of different. Um, First of all, I have to say this. If you thought our theme was Sterling Hayden, it's not. (laughs) He is in both movies. (laughs) He is in both films. It was a complete fucking accident. We, We did not plan that at all. But I think that, you know, for one, like your movie, an absolute classic and and also a movie mm-hmm. that you and I've talked about before. We did this movie in um, Columbus when we were at yeah. um, the Wexner Center. So I'm excited to, I have, to talk about it again. I haven't seen it actually since then. But then with my film, it's a it's a Western, but like, you know, something totally different, but also fits into the theme. So I'm I'm just really excited to explore this concept and to talk about these movies and... I am too. And I well, I had not seen your movie before, even though there's a huge poster of it behind your head that I look at every time we record. <laughs> I had never seen it. And I'm like, this movie is incredible. Not just yeah. for the time, but still. Like, it is an incredible film. Yeah. And I think very, very much indicative of this theme. And my movie... Like, I just... I'm really excited to talk about how the the power the dynamics of power and race and class play into women's place in the world mm-hmm. um and i just i don't know i just i'm really i really like this as a theme because i just kind of gravitate towards powerful women in my life and yep. i like you know being more aware of 
how we're culturally perceived. I think it's just always interesting to me to see how we're we're culturally perceived. Yeah. And the title will always be funny to us. And if it's funny to nobody but us, I don't give a shit. It, it is, like, I'm just looking at it on this piece of paper right now is making me laugh, so. And that has been the case for the last few weeks. Like, yeah. we have just looked at it in meetings or just, like, when we're recording, be like, what's coming up next? Oh, my God. Yes. It's just funny. It's just funny. And I think it, it'll allow us to talk about, again, it's that double bind, and it'll allow us to talk about things in, in a more realistic way. I think if we just say the thing that people call us anyway. Exactly. Well, you're going first this week. I am indeed. And my film was the highest grossing comedy of 1980. Um, The screenplay is by Colin Higgins and Patricia Resnick. It was directed by Colin Higgins. And my film is 9 to 5. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. This movie had such a huge cultural impact, and it still does. There are so many things you could read about it. I don't want to, you know, the list is exhaustive. So if you are very interested in finding out more about this movie, oral histories, etc., there's so much out there for you to find. Um, There is also, and I'll talk about this in a bit, there's also a documentary that came out recently called Still Working 9 to 5. Mm. And it points out the kind of the persistence of the issues that were expressed in this film and how it hasn't imp- really improved at all since the time wow. this film was released. So I'll give you a one-sentence synopsis because this cast is unfuckwithable. So our one-sentence synopsis is three secretaries sick of getting passed over in a gender discrimination-laden office shed their internalized misogyny, smoke a joint, and decide to settle for kidnapping their boss and improving the workplace instead of going on a justified killing spree. Yes! Amazing. It is such a good movie. It is so good. So this movie, of course, stars Jane Fonda as Judy, Lily Tomlin as Violet, and Dolly Parton as Doralee Rhodes. Their absolute pig of a boss is played to perfection by Dabney Coleman. Mm-hmm. Yes, Sterling Hayden is in here as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Peggy Pope is in here. I mean, just it's got like this really incredible list of actors. But the, the three main actors in this film are bringing something so different to each character, but it works. It absolutely works. Yeah. And this is an office. They're working for this guy named Frank Hart. And you just get right into the motion of it. And we're meeting Judy on her first day at work. And <laughs> Judy is kind of coming back to the workforce. So to kind of place this film in the cultural moment, in 1980, and I know we've talked about this before, you know, this is like post-second wave feminism, Mm-hmm. And a lot of women going back to the workforce after either having raised children or, you know, not been in the workforce for a long time because they were, you know, raising families or just, you know, being married. And that was their focus. So you have a lot of women coming back to the workforce in in a lot of cities and really all over. But in this film, we particularly focus on the city life, the city aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And they're not really treated with a tremendous amount of respect. And they're not really given a tremendous amount of pay even though they have an extraordinary amount of responsibilities. So yeah. we meet Judy on her first day starting at this company. And um, Dora Lee is Frank's uh, secretary. Violet kind of runs all the secretaries. And then Judy's just starting. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment starting a job and not knowing what your salary is. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Can you even imagine that? <laughs> this is where we were. Yeah, no, this is, this is exactly like what I was thinking too, was just sort of like, just wanting the job, you know, yeah. but not knowing how much it paid. That's how desperate yeah, th- she was, right? Yeah, this is why I give little girls 20 bucks and a hatchet. And I'm like, you better learn how to negotiate. <laughs> So you don't start your first job at fucking Dunkin' Donuts and you're like, I don't even know how much I'm getting paid. Like, by the time I'm done with these kids, they're going to know what FICA means. They're going to know what a net and a gross is. Mm -hmm. Like, know how to read your paycheck, know how to pay your taxes. So yeah, Judy starts. She doesn't know what her salary is. She's just excited to be getting paid. And as we're going through the motion of the office and Violet's kind of leading her through what the office life is, we get to see that Dora Lee is a real bone of contention in the office because she's Dolly Parton. So she's like tiny and gorgeous and everyone assumes that she and Frank are having an affair. Right. And this is the internalized misogyny that I lightly referenced in the one sentence. This is something that I think is a fallacy that is pushed upon women in the workplace is that we're all in competition with each other. Yep. Instead of, oh no, I'm in competition with myself and the dude who's getting paid more than me for doing the same job. Right. Like, in these spaces, they're still doing everything they can to keep us relegated to these small spaces so that we don't see the bigger picture of how we're all being fucked over by, like, three guys. And the flip side of that, of course, being that Dora Lee is just being straight-up sexually harassed. Yes. Absolutely. And then has, like, no one to turn to because everyone is like, oh, look at her, what a tramp. And she's like, I'm actually being harassed. I'm not inviting any of this. I'm married. Like, I don't want this dude touching me. I don't want this dude relegating me to my physical properties for this job. So it's really, I think the movie does a really good job of of showcasing that how the dynamic was originally set up in this office, which was, like, everyone was upset and sad and anxious and felt like they were in competition with each other and there was no unity because of one dude who fostered that environment. One dude. I think what's also interesting is they actually have like a plant in this movie in the form of Roz, who Mm. speaks more to what you were just saying, which is like, this is a woman who's actively spying on other women in the office to report back to Frank so that she can get the accolades she deserves. And get her promotions and, like, her own personal gain is hard won by spying on other women in the office. Yeah, that character, the Ross character to me, is the most fucked up, if I'm honest. And this is just based on, like, experiences that I've had, like, in the workplace. She, like, sits there on the toilet and takes (laughs) notes on toilet paper when other women are talking shit about her boss. And I'm just like, that is so... That is so backwards. Ugh. And we've seen the same thing in Working Girl in, in, a, in a weird flipped way where Sigourney Weaver takes, you know, Melanie Griffith's idea and passes it off as, as her own because she wants her male bosses to think that she's on top of shit and she's got, you know, she deserves the job she has. Like, it's just perpetuates itself when you go down that road. Oof. And this is also a world where, like, Hart admits when he first meets Judy and they're talking about the office, he admits that Violet knows more than anyone in the office and knows more than he does. And then he relegates her to going to get his coffee and go shopping for a gift for his wife. Yeah. And he steals her idea about, like, color coding the files. Like, he knows she's—he keeps her around to be smart so that he can personally benefit from it. And so, like, the Roses and Violets of the world kind of work in tandem in a weird way. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, it's bone-chilling when Violet's like, oh yeah, I taught him everything he knows. I trained him. Mm -hmm. 
I trained him. Yeah. And now he's her boss. And I'm just like, that is so fucked. But sadly, a fucking reality still. Super common. Yes. Super common. And what, what it's usually referred to as, or what it used to be referred to as, is that these are women who are kind of wearing the pink collar. Sometimes it's called the pink collar ghetto, which is basically just like low paying, low mobility jobs that are dominated by women. The kind of the it's been around for a while, but the um, Louise Cap kind of popularized the notion in the 70s. And there's there are a couple of cool books if you're in, at all interested in this topic, breaking out of the the Pink Collar Ghetto Policy Solutions for Non-College Women by Sharon Mastracci and The Feminization of Poverty by Karen Stollard, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Holly Sklar came out in 1983. It's a great book. And this, doing research for this movie made me miss teaching so much. Like I used to teach this shit and I loved it. And I just miss, maybe I could be a teacher again. That's how I can get to kids. Um, hello. Go now. Press stop right now and go apply for a job at the local university. You'd be great. Oh, God. I would love it. But And I think that the the reason that this is interesting to me is that we all have heard of this, most people have heard by now, of the wage gap and how women earn less than men. We're earning, you know, pennies on the dollar in some cases compared to men for the same work. Mm-hmm. But that also, I don't think most people are aware, because this is a movie that stars three white women, the wage gap differs by race, by education level, but it's always still less than what men earn. So, yeah, a lot of women are of women of color are affected by the bias of like the types of jobs they work, um, the hours they work, like all different levels of discrimination. Basically, it's like women are also disproportionately represented in the service and care industry. So, nursing, janitorial, cashier, customer service reps—the jobs that we don't consider high skill and high earning, but who are doing most of the work to keep our our culture going and yep. to keep our society going. So in terms of the wage gap itself, it's basically, if you look at a dollar bill, like a white guy is doing the same job as you, he earns a dollar. White women earn 83 cents for the same job. Black women earn 64 cents. Multiracial Asian women and Asian women usually earn about a dollar. So they're the only ones that are comparable right now. Native American women are earning 60 cents to every man's dollar, and Latinx women are earning 57 cents on the dollar. Mm. And that comes from like the, the the 2020 census and some information I pulled from the American AmericanProgress.org um, site. But also consider the pandemic saw a rise in women quitting the workforce to be caretakers. So those numbers are probably much more abysmal now. And so the movie is funny, but it doesn't ignore the the anger and, you know, the kind of the rage that these women feel and that women feel in general in the workspace. Because as hard as you're working and as much as you're relegated to working at working in your job and then going home and being the primary person who's caring for your home and your family, you're earning sometimes up to 40 cents less than men. Yeah. And the main reason given for paying men more is because in the past, at least, it's been, well, they're the breadwinners of the family. So if they have to take care of the wife and kids and we should pay them more, that's no longer the case and it hasn't been the case for a very long time. So this system is perpetuated just because it was put in place by men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they just keep the system going because they want to earn more money. Right. Truly. Like when you really look at the numbers and the facts and the figures, 
There is no reason to pay someone less for the same job other than misogyny and the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Wow, dude. And on that bummer note, bye and the podcast. <laughs> and see y'all next week. <laughs> but I do think that what the movie does well, and again, considering that it came out in 1980 especially, and that it's still so relevant, is it highlights all of these issues, but it does it in the way that it's from the women's perspective. Because instead of questioning, like, why do they take these jobs and why do they do this? You're fully invested in what their lives are. Like, Violet has kids she has to take care of. Mm-hmm. You know, Dora Lee and her husband have their own dreams and goals. Judy is going back to work for specific reasons. They're all there because they need to work. Nobody has the luxury of not working. Right. And... So we can't put the blame on them for taking these shit jobs. Right. You know, we have to start putting the blame, both in this movie and in real life, on the culture that perpetuates forcing women to take jobs where they're going to be paid less because they need to work. Yeah, so. and it's like, and part of like what I think, I mean, I mean, this this movie is brilliant because it like, there's so many like funny, like, you know, huge comedic moments in the film, but the, the, the bones of it, the the structure of it is super timely and important and political. And I mean, the thing about the the they're not even allowed to have a coffee cup on their desk. Right. You know nothing personal. <laughs> yeah, nothing personal on their desks. They're not allowed to like have joy in their office. Like there's no flexibility with the schedules, with the, the childcare, with anything. And it you know, it's all in this, like, effort to be efficient and to make money and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's it just really becomes, like, uh, you know, obviously this big sort of, like, message about capitalism and how capitalism just doesn't treat workers, period, in ways where they're respected, but women especially. Absolutely. And it, it really impacts me personally to know this information and to see how capitalism works in this way and to yeah. see from a young, from a young kid when I was watching this movie and other movies, like to see how this plays out has impacted me because I am now a boss. And as a showrunner, I've worked in, let me just say this, how do I say this without ruining my career? So hmm. <laughs> as, a, as a showrunner, I've been in, you know, I've, as a writer, I've been in several rooms, several writing, writing writers rooms. And I will say that no matter how much I like the project or enjoy the people I'm working with, when I'm in rooms by for shows that are run by men, um, we're usually working much longer hours. You know, we're working 12 to 14 hours a day because they don't want to go home to their families. No, I'm kidding. Ah, <laughs> no but we're shit. usually working much longer hours. Um, there's usually a lack of care given to, you know, need for rest or recovery, it's usually more pun- a much more punishing schedule. I will just say that as a blanket statement. Much more punishing schedule. And there's not really a focus on teaching. It's more of a focus on, here's what I know, so mm-hmm. we're going to do it this way, instead of we're in a space where we could all learn from each other. Um, and if anyone wants to learn what I know, I'll then I'm here for that. For that. So the last couple of shows that I've run... I've had feedback from writers who have said to me, like, this is the most humane experience I've ever had in this business. Because if, we, you know, we're usually working remote. If I'm running a room, 
you don't have to live in Los Angeles to have a TV writer career, as far as right. I'm concerned. You don't have to live in L.A. and New York. It's absurd. They're the two most expensive places in the world to live. If you're a great writer and you live in Nebraska, you should have a shot to be mm-hmm. in this industry. So we do it remote. And I usually work, you know, we're on Zoom. So my own personal capacity for looking at people on a video screen usually taps out at five hours. Um, so we work for five hours on Zoom with a lunch break in between. So it's really four hours. And then I assign homework. So I'm like, you know, this some questions for tomorrow, some things to consider. Because as a creative person, you need time to think. That is an important part of the job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need time to develop the story. And instead of wasting our time fighting in the room about ideas the way men like to do, so just so they can have pull a power play and say, we're going with this, I say, let's do this more collaboratively. It has, it has resulted in faster script turnaround, less conflict of story, less conflict in production, because I simply treat people like human beings. I'm like, I want you to be able to take your children to doctor's appointments. I want you to be able to go to doctor's appointments. I want, if we're ever going to work later, outside of the hours that I have outlined, um, I will give you three days notice so you can you know, get care, caretakers or, you know, adjust your own schedule. Um, so I can't, because I cannot tell you how many times I've gone into a writer's room and I'm like, thank God we're going to be done at six. And they're like, we're going till 10. And I'm like, what? Mm. <laughs> I was going to go grocery shopping tonight. What do you mean? Right. So it's small things that to me feel common sense and small have actually impacted my the, the lives of my writers in a very positive way. And one of them even called me crying one day and she was like, I just can't believe how nice this is. Like, wow. it's just so nice to work for a woman <laughs> who gets it. Yeah. And, you know, because and I'm like, you don't have to, like, you're adults, you're competent adults, you're talented. I already know you can do the job. You're not here to prove you can do this job. We're right. just here to get stuff done. And so it just created a more open and free-flowing environment. And it felt to me very nine to five-ish because I'm like, this is yeah. the difference that we can see. And my producers would always say, like, this is, like, we've never worked with someone like this before. And this is, again, not to really toot my own horn, even though that sounds exactly like what I'm doing, but just to prove that, like, one person can impact a space positively or negatively, depending on their own ethos and where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man who is brought up in a world to believe that you can only exhibit your power and your connection to humanity through strength and through oppression— um, you're just going to perpetuate that yeah. until you learn that there's another way to do it. And so I just, because I come from a different kind of life and a different space in life, and I didn't plan this career, and like I didn't learn how to be rigid about this career, I kind of take all of my world knowledge and all of my experiential knowledge into the space and just think there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you just basically did what Violet did in the film, which is that eventually when you know, Mr. Hart goes away. And we, I think we all know mm-hmm. what happens when he goes away, right? Is that she's impl- she's the one that comes in and implements all of these things that make their lives easier, yep. that allow them to actually be better at their jobs and to be more efficient and more productive because they're able to, like, have a full life. And, like, yeah. it, I mean, that's great. That Like, I yeah. love that that you were able to, like, do that for you know, the people that work for you, so. Thank you. And I, and with my assistant, too. Like, I'd, I'd never really had an assistant before um, because I'm super, you know, to, to an astonishingly 
brain damaging degree. I'm very independent, mm-hmm. but I have an have an assistant for this job, and we talked in depth before you know as I was hiring her and as we were you know kind of offering her the job. Um, I made it very clear that you're not you're not a personal assistant for my life. You're a personal assistant for the show. So like I'm not going to task you with going grocery shopping for me or like sending my mail. Like I'm an adult. I can do those things. Like <laughs> you will assist me in making the show run better. And it's also was very important to me because this is a young woman who's like, you know, I, it was important for me to find out from her, like, well, what are your goals? Like, where do you want to get um, in your life? And how will this job help you get there so that I can start helping to do that for you? If it's you want to be a producer, let me introduce you to the producers and you can talk to them directly and work with them directly. Like there doesn't have to be this embargo. And I also made it very clear that, you know, your hours, like your day ends at 5 p.m. Because there, if I'm organized enough, there should never be an emergency that requires you to work past the hours that you're required to work. Mm-hmm. And she was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I don't want you to be out for dinner with friends and checking your phone every 10 minutes because you're afraid to miss an email from me. Go live your life. Like, go out and be a, get a good night's sleep. Like, be a full person. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I've been an assistant for so long. I've never had anyone say that to me. Like mm. assist, being an assistant is a 24-hour job. And I'm like, no, well, it shouldn't be. Because I know you're not getting paid for a 24-hour job. Mm. So let me take care of my personal life. You will help me with the show. And your hours end at 5 p.m. And she was like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. So I think that I take really a lot of pride in being able to to be the kind of boss that I would want, essentially. Yeah. So if it sounds like, oh, she's tooting her own horn here. Well, I am. I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I've like tried to be effective in changing this horrible culture that I've seen firsthand for so long. And right. it's very rare that we're in a position to do that. So I feel proud of it. But I also yeah. think a lot of it comes from the influences I've seen in pop culture, including this film. So just yeah. to get back to the film for a moment. <laughs> so first of all, incredible 80s moments in this movie. We've got a copy machine the size of a NASA control room. <laughs> the shoulder phone rest that Violet uses could sub- could support a linebacker. Of course. <laughs> huge. Huge. And then again, we're seeing the dynamics of these women in the office, and they finally get together and decide to have an old-fashioned ladies' pot party. And <laughs> like that's where they really start to bond um, because they realize, oh, we all hate our fucking jobs. Like, we all hate working for Frank Hart. And they have these fantasies about how they would kill Frank. So Judy would hunt him down like she was on a safari. Dora Lee is like, I would reverse the harassment and hogtie his fucking ass. Um, and Violet's just like, I'd kill him with rat with rat poison. Yeah. So they have these really funny um, fantasies that you see played out. And the reason that becomes very important later on is that all of these fantasies somehow end up playing out in real life. Mm. So what happens is Frank's wife leaves for this two-month cruise um, he falls over, like he's gets hurt. And through a comedy of errors, Violet thinks that she has actually killed him with rat poison when she gets his coffee that day. And like she thinks she put rat poison in it instead of sugar. So this incredible comedy of errors happens where she ends up stealing the body and putting him in her trunk. And like, you know, they then they, they realize he's not dead and they still want to keep him away from work because work's actually great without him there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so they kind of restrain him and tie him up and, like, come up with this incredible system of, like, keeping him at home all day watching TV Mr. Mom style. Mm -hmm. And it's just really, again, like, it's very funny and 
it's 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 the exact kind of move that people would make if they are not career criminals. Like, they didn't plan any of this, so they just had to, like, jerry-rig all of it. But they also love keeping him away from the office, and they've got this two months to really let him think about, <laughs> you know, what he's, how he's treated them. Uh, and they've got two months to kind of make the office what they want it to be. So they do add split shifts, and they add daycare, and they add paint, and, like, let people put personal things on their desk. And it is a better environment, and it is lovelier. And the movie carries on from there, of course, because Frank gets loose. And <laughs> things happen after that. I won't spoil it for you, actually, if you haven't seen the movie. But I think that the, the, the movie itself is so, so joyful and so positive because they're focusing on, again, like all of the anger and rage that these women feel— but they have to internalize it. They have to swallow it. And when they finally get a chance to be free and kind of talk it out and realize that there's more commonality and they have more of a bond than they do differences, they start working to change, make life better for everyone else. And I just mm-hmm. think that's a beautiful, beautiful message. Yeah, I do too. I I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about this movie. It's like we said, it's such a classic and I mean, perfect for the theme. It, it's so funny because I, I've watched this movie like obviously a few times and I kept thinking like, this time I was really like focused on the, the Dabney Coleman character and I kept thinking, mm-hmm. God, he sadly reminds me a lot of like my friend's dads when I was growing yeah. up and I was like... <laughs> Even with this little bit of a Southern accent, and I had to Google it because I actually didn't know where Dabney Coleman was from. And he's from Texas. And I'm like, oh, of course. Of course he's got that accent. And then I'm like, oh, now it really makes sense. I'm like, yeah, just this kind of like scary, misogynist, mustache, Southern guy. I'm like, this is like pretty much all the dads I knew growing up, like this guy. Um, and he, Too familiar. I, too familiar. <laughs> but he has like a lot of like, I mean, even in the like... The, <laughs> I love the fantasy moments because it really is like so fun to watch. And the the one where Dorley's it's Dorley's fantasy where she's now the boss, she is the CEO. Yeah. And like he's like playing her little assistant and he's like <laughs> taking notes and she's like, Ooh, what's that smell? What's your like scent? He just looks at her and is like stud like he's got that like look on his face of like this eager beaver like assistant and i'm just like that's so fun to watch him because he's an asshole in this movie obviously but then in those fantasy moments where he has to like play against type it's so it's so funny such a good actor so absolutely and you see how absurd it looks when you flip that around like this looks absurd because and it should look absurd for for anyone, not right. just him, but especially with him. And he is—he really is a great comic actor, yeah. um, and truly nails this role because he's such a pig in this role. Yeah. And I I love the fantasy moments too. I think that you know, watching like Dolly Parton swing a lasso and like yeah. <laughs> like Jane uh, uh, Lily Tomlin like Violet's fantasy. She's basically Snow White, and she's like, I love making coffee basically for my boss, and then she just puts some rat poison in there. Mm-hmm. Also, not for nothing, but the image of her running through the hospital with that gurney is classically hilarious. Yes. Classically hilarious. And then then also I think that it's important to look at who is cast in these roles. So Jane Fonda is an incredibly outspoken activist, and she has been for decades. Lily Tomlin, also outspoken activist, you know, in her own personal life, in her professional life. 
And there's an incredible clip of her walking off, if you've never seen this, of her walking off of a talk show after someone asks her one of the most sexist questions of all time. And she just leaves. Like, she's a total fucking legend. Love it. Um, And Dolly Parton, who has been doing social and civic, like, just social and civic engagement and donating money and donating books and just low-key being the most generous person on the fucking planet. Yeah for the length of her career. Like, it makes me cr- want to cry to think of how much she's given back to children and and to people who are, again, like, dispor- disproportionately affected by poverty, by, you know, just... She's just so goddamn generous. And she helped develop our fucking va- vaccines for COVID. Like, she donated a million bucks and was like, let's get this vaccine going. So you think about the women in this film and how... They use this film to kind of bolster something that was very important to them in their personal lives. And I just think it's it was perfectly cast. It's always a fun watch. And it makes me think about the world in a really inspiring way that I often don't think of it, of, of it in. I usually think of the world as a true horror show. Yeah. And sometimes you watch a movie like this and you're like, oh, well, we can make little changes. We can do little things. Yeah, and totally. And and for the theme, I mean, these CEOs, the cunts in charge of office, I mean, it, it's like they, it goes to show that like a woman who is in charge of an office doesn't have to be the mega bitch. She's kind mm-hmm. and she understands your life. And like you were just talking about when you were talking about you being a showrunner, it doesn't have to be this like, you know, overwrought stereotype of like the shrew, boss lady it's it could be something completely different and i think this movie is proof absolutely fits the theme so well for it was first one i thought of i'm like oh yeah ceo let's do it yeah exactly i love it and your film especially was out the gate so perfect for this theme i couldn't even believe it <laughs> yeah i love taking a little bit of a shift in tone and genre but um Nonetheless, still fits the theme, I think. Um, so my movie for the theme, <laughs> I'm going to say without laughing, CEO, cunt and charge of office, <laughs> is um, a movie from 1954. It was based on a novel by Roy Chancellor, written by Philip Jordan Directed by Nicholas Ray, it's called Johnny Guitar. Down there I sell whiskey and cards. All you can buy up these stairs is a bullet in the head. Now which do you want? So yes, if you know me, if you know me, you you know why I would like this movie. Come on, let's get serious. Not Not just because there's a poster behind me framed <laughs> of the film. It's... You know, it's one of my faves, all-time faves. Yeah, it makes Um, sense. It makes sense. Yeah, it it makes sense. I mean, it will. And if you haven't seen it or have never heard about it, like we're gonna get into it, and by the end of it, you'll be like, okay, I get it. Um, so right off the bat, just to get this out of the way, this movie was directed by Nicholas Ray. If you do not know him, either he made a little movie called Rebel Without a Cause. He made a lot of great movies in the fifties. They typically center around outsiders and kind of uh, the term beautiful losers, I think, has been kind of uh, pointed in his direction. Uh, This movie, obviously a lot about outsiders. We'll get into that in just a second. So what I think is really fascinating about this film was that 
the script for this movie was credited to a man named, named Philip Jordan. And he was a famous and slightly controversial figure in American film. He was essentially a front for screenwriters who were blacklisted during the Hollywood blacklist era. And if you don't know anything about this, you should read about it. It's really interesting. And there was a there was many people who were doing this in the blacklist era, like working, you know, sort of getting credit for things for blacklisted writers, right? And the yeah. legend about Johnny Guitar particularly is that Philip Jordan was a surrogate for a blacklisted screenwriter named Ben Maddow. And I've read in different places different things, so I don't want to, like, go on record as to, you know, to knowing exactly what the deal is. But basically, it's it's um, been said that Maddow actually wrote the movie, but then, you know, and that Philip Jordan was just, like, the writer that got credit for it, so. Ah, that makes sense. So you yeah. see his name a lot, and you're like, this guy is so prolific. And you're like, it's actually for 20 people. <laughs> well, and that, and that was very common. I mean, that that is that has happened. That happened a lot. You know, obviously, like, blacklisted writers like Dalton Trumbo, you know, they ended up a lot of times, like, getting credit for things after the fact because they were kind right. of working in the shadows a lot of times. And some, some in, like, fake names, like, actual fake names. But some were real people who were also screenwriting but also, like, doing this for others. So it's interesting. Yeah. I would I would say it's it's such an interesting era. You should read about it if you don't know anything about it. But the like the blacklist actually does play a lot into Johnny Guitar because effectively like the movie is essentially about an innocent woman who is being run out of town by a mob, right? And that's very very much about what the blacklist was. But I have to say, for our purposes, for this theme, this movie is definitely about a woman being in charge. Okay. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> it is It is maybe one, I will say, if, if it's not the only, but it's definitely one of the only classic Westerns where women play both the protagonist and the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And you got... Two powerhouse actresses. You've got Joan Crawford, right, going up against Mercedes McCambridge, which, by the way, if you don't know Mercedes McCambridge, she's a legend. She's she's just the type of lady I love. Let's just say that. They're both two fucking no-nonsense women. They got this, like, white-hot butch power flowing through their veins. And... They did not get along on set. I mean, that's that's kind really? of that. Yeah, that's kind of a story that, that apparently Joan Crawford at one point threw Mercedes McCambridge's clothes out into the street. Oh, like, whoa! Yes, it was. It so was these a, are where like this is one of those films where like the stories about her that we saw like in Mommy Dearest, for example, like this is where they originate. Oh yeah, I mean, there was this quote. This really great quote from Sterling Hayden when he talks about like working with Joan Crawford on this movie and it's 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 funny I don't want to quote it cuz it's it's I'm going to get it wrong but it's basically like I will never work with her again I and I really like money so that's <laughs> how that's how bad she was to work with type of thing. That's a fucking incredible statement. <laughs> I know. Even paraphrased like this, how bad she is. Yeah. And, but listen, hell. I have to say, Joan, in John Crawford's defense, we were born on the same day. 
So in a lot in a not the same year, obviously, but we're Mar- she's a March twenty third baby, and I have always known that about myself. I'm like I have the spirit of Joan Crawford running through my 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 whole being. I you connect could be the reincarnation. Her. You could be the reincarnation of her. I fucking hope so. I hope that's that something happened in the <laughs> in the stars. But I I but I feel an affinity towards Joan because of that. And I think a lot of people do. I mean, I think that she was one of those like legendary classic actors that like she was I mean, she embodied the c- cunt in charge of office. Like she yeah. ran shit, right? And you know, there was there's all this Hollywood mythology about her, about Betty Davis, about all this stuff. So I feel like in this film, that the film takes advantage of that in a really big way. Awesome. And she was a huge part of making it happen. So, you know, bottom line is that she's running this shit. Period. And the 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 entire story is about her character, even though the movie is named after her boyfriend, effectively. But basically, right. the film is about her and her character, who is named Vienna. And th- this is like the thing that is remarkable about this film is that in we talked about this, I think, when we did the um, Sundays with Grandpa episode with. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Shane. Mm. You did not see this in in the westerns era, the classic Hollywood westerns era. There's like all the women in the films were typically just side characters to the men. Oh yeah, and Johnny Guitar is not that at all. And really, like again, like right out of the gate, like I was really happy to see that this was like an uncompromising character because it's so so unseen at this point in time and in this genre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like, I think it's a feminist film. I, you know, uh, essentially, you just really don't have, like, the the men in this film defer to the women on both sides. Mm -hmm. On Vienna's side and in the Mercedes McCabe's side, her character's name, Emma, they are leading the pack on either side. And... The characters, the male characters that come in contact with her, they defer to her. They they listen to her. And, you know, and even if you want to get down to it, all of the love interests, the male love interests in Vienna's life are like pretty much himbos compared to compared to her. I mean, they're just like hot pieces, if you will. Uh, especially totally. the dancing kid. We're gonna get to the dancing kid in just a second. But it's just that thing where I'm like, when would you see this in a 50s film, let alone in a film now? It's, I mean, it's just yeah. rare to see this kind of energy. Oh, especially um, like when Johnny Guitar tries to slut shame Vienna oh, and yeah. she's like, you don't need to worry about it because you weren't here. And I'm yeah. like, damn, even now that would be a powerful statement. Hell yeah. And that is, so le- like the movie goes a little something like this, right? Joan Crawford plays Vienna she owns the saloon on the outskirts of this western town, okay? And this saloon, which is called Vienna's, is her lifeblood. She wants to be buried in it. She, is, she basically admits to anyone that's listening that she paid for it by being a sex worker, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't, they don't really say it. Yeah, it's not explicit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, she's basically like, yes, I paid for this by 
some some sort of means, like in that world, right? And you know, it's a place where you can play cards and drink, and but it's a classy joint. Like it's not, it's not a uh, like even though the people in the town think it's this like den of iniquity, she runs a tight fucking ship, and. She knows that she's about to make a killing because they're about to build the railroad right outside of her door, okay? So this is, like, the most important place to her. So, again, we have this woman in charge of her own business that she built from the ground up. She's extremely proud of it, and she's not going to let anybody fuck with it if she can, Mm -hmm. right? Which is really, really powerful and amazing. So what ends up happening towards the beginning of the movie is that, the like, basically a stagecoach gets robbed— and a man is murdered, okay? It turns out the man who got murdered is the brother of a woman named Emma who was played by Mercedes McCabridge, like I said. And Emma runs, pretty much runs this town that, mm-hmm. um, you know, is basically the closest town to where Vienna's place is, right? It's, it's basically her and this guy named Mr. McIvers who is played by Ward Bond. Very interesting career he had. You should look him up, too, especially as it pertains to the blacklist. He was kind of, like, really anti-communist in a way that maybe, like, destroyed him. But, you know, go read about him. It's very it's very interesting. But Mr. McIvers and Emma, they really fucking hate Vienna, and they want her out of town. And even more interestingly is that Emma really hates Vienna. Mm-hmm. Almost to, like, a startling degree— at one point, she calls her a railroad tramp, <laughs> which in this era seems to be the highest insult you could ever hurl at that, someone. That is the cunt of 1954. <laughs> <laughs> railroad tramp in charge of office. Absolutely. <laughs> and here's the thing about this Emma character. Okay, she hates Vienna so badly. And we suspect that it's because Emma has a crush on a man that goes by the name of the Dancing Kid. Good Lord. <laughs> the Dancing Kid, who is played by Scott Brady. And guess what? The Dancing Kid is actually in love with Vanna. And it's not in love with Emma. And she is feeling some type of way about it. Okay? Let me just say that if your paramour has the nickname Kid anywhere in their name... Kid Rock, Kid Cuddy. I don't get. Leave them. <laughs> Run away. Yes. And I, I got to be honest with you. Like he, there's a part at the beginning where um, the Sterling Hayden character is like, "All right, dancing kid, can you actually dance?" I mean, he seems like he can. It's not nothing special. So it's to me. I'm like, you really called yourself the dancing kid, and you're just like okay at dancing. Okay. If you if you have a nickname the dancing kid you should no one should ever see you walking. You shouldn't ever take a regular step. You should be dancing everywhere you fucking go. Yeah, you should be like rerun from what's happening like every fucking yeah. second like walking into a thing, popping and locking. Like that's your name. <laughs> so fucking it's bold of the dancing kid to have given himself that name. Let me just say that. Just imagine a kid popping and locking through a western. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. Well, look, he might be the original Vanilla Popper. We don't know. Um, (laughs) Now, 
here's an interesting component to this film, and this has, like, been written about a lot, and it gets brought up a lot. Okay, so you're like, Emma really hates Vienna. And maybe, just maybe, it's because Emma is actually in love with Vienna. Oh. Because... Interesting. I mean, when it comes down to it, like, you know... The 1950s are going to 1950, right? I mean, they're not going to be like, yo, these two are lesbians. Like, you know, there's a lot of like, a lot of, there's some coding happening in the film where you think, okay, well, maybe these women, maybe Emma is, has like a unrequited thing for Vienna and that's why she's so angry and wants her dead, right? Right. That, that's obviously a component to the film that people talk about and, you know, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting read on the film, for sure. Um, but here's the thing. Okay, so Vienna has decided to employ the protective services of this man named Johnny Guitar, who was played by Sterling Hayden. Yes, he was in 9 to 5 as well, dressed like Colonel Sanders or whatever the fuck, that outfit. I think he, he played Tinsworthy or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's literally dressed in like a white suit with like a black little tie, and then he takes his hat off and he's just sweating. Oh, God. Sterling yeah. Hayden made some choices throughout his career, let's just say that. Yeah, he was a huge, awesome man in any in any regard. But he, in the film, he's, he's essentially presented at first as a traveling musician, right? So he plays guitars in bars for a living. And then you quickly find out two things about him. Number one, his name is actually Johnny Logan, and at one point he was one of the most famous gunfighters in the West before he hung up his guns in a very Shane-like way, right? He's too good. He'll shoot anyone dead from any position, and he just can't be trusted with guns. You gotta hang him up. <laughs> no one no one can ever beat him. He's gonna win all the time, so it's not even a fair fight. Right, like, he is too fucking good. He's the Dalton of gunfighters, right? Like, don't... Please, Johnny Guitar, don't hurt him. <laughs> um, and and the other thing that gets presented is that he and Vienna apparently used to date. <laughs> and I guess Vienna is shaking off men left and right between him and the dancing kid. And apparently Johnny Guitar has agreed to come back into her life to protect her from this mob. Um, but he's also secretly still in love with her. So there's all that. Okay. Um, to be honest, a uh, part of the, the reason why I also love this movie is that Sterling Hayden, you know, if you know anything about him and his career, he was pretty much known for being this, like, really tough, like, noir guy. So I am fucking stoked that he's playing this character because, like I said, he is, like, the hot piece of ass love interest to Joan Crawford. Like, the film is named after him, but let's get serious, like... He's, like, at her feet being like, please love me again. I love you so much. Do you ever think of me? Even if you don't just lie and tell me you do. That whole scene, I'm like, dude, just a, a shred of self-respect here, please. Yes. I mean, I fucking love it. Because I'm just it's like, great. when are we going to see Sterling Hayden, like, beg Joan Crawford to love him? And she's just like, robotically being like, yes, I can't live without you. Oh, I've missed you so much. She's so over. She's like, I'm sick of these fucking dudes coming in here and fucking cramping my style. Yes! <laughs> like, dancing kid, fucking Johnny Guitar. Oh, you motherfuckers coming in here and, like, 
in the whole from the beginning of the movie, she's screaming about how like this is her place and she's gonna go down with it. And, the, and I'm like, she loves this thing she's built more than it, more than she'll ever love you. Like you have to get that through your head at some point. Yes, yes. And here's here's like probably the pinnacle of his character and how he plays sort of this like second fiddle to Vienna in the movie. Okay. It is my favorite scene in the film. It's a very subtle moment, but it is literally something that I watch like anytime it comes up, I watch it like 20 times. Okay. It's at the beginning of the film. The dancing kid comes into Vienna's his he's with his gang, which includes Ernest Borgnine, of course. And they're in Vienna's and they're having a showdown with Emma and MacIvers and the townspeople, because the townspeople believe that the dancing kid killed Emma's brother. Mm-hmm. So they all they all want to pin this stagecoach murder on the dancing kid and his gang. Okay, so there's this very tense moment. A shot glass almost falls off the bar. Okay, and right as it's about to fall off the bar. Here comes old Johnny Guitar to catch it backhanded style. And then the the camera pans up and he's holding this very dainty teacup. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, hell yes. This is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life. I'm like, who's this fucking tough guy holding this little pretty teacup? Get you a man who can do both. Get you a man. I mean, it is very hot to me. You know, like having the sight of Sterling Hayden holding this like <laughs> teacup, trying to defuse the situation. I'm like, yes, this is a movie that was written with my interest in mind, even oh though I was God. not born yet, but whatever. So, <laughs> okay. So, fast forward through the action. Emma and McIvers basically give Vienna, the dancing kid, and his boys, they give them 24 hours to get out of town or they're going to kill him. So, the kid decides. Well, hell, if we're going to be set up for this stagecoach robbery thing and we didn't do it and they want us to leave anyway, why don't we just rob a bank on the way out of town? Might as well rob something. Get that cash. And guess what? All hell breaks loose after they do this. They make this stupid decision. And Emma is leading the charge with this. I mean, she convinces the entire town that the dancing kid and Vienna are actually in cahoots and... Emma fucking burns down Vienna's place. It is so fucking sad, but the the fire in her eyes when she's like, I'm fucking t- burning this shit to the ground. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. such, such a fucking like moment for that character. And again, Emma is in charge. She's in charge of the townspeople. She's running yeah. shit. The lynch mob comes to collect Vienna at some point and this teenage member of the dancing kids gang who was just named Turkey turkey such a turkey fucked up so bad oh my god so he's like a teenage wannabe gunslinger and he's just very cocky and he just like doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and like turkey is such a funny fucking name to me and in the history of funny names on this podcast he's up there with cheb chelios and john matrix as far as i'm concerned so here's the thing uh you know they're about to get lynched and johnny Qatar has to basically save her then they both have to escape and basically move to the dancing kid's hideout. And of course, the kid and Johnny Guitar are sizing each other up because they're both in love with Vienna. And the entire time, Vienna's spitting out these like venomous one-liners and she's pulling <laughs> guns on men. She's like playing the piano in a white fucking dress while everybody's at a funeral. 
Like, she's just like, oh, y'all are wearing black because y'all are in a funeral. Well, guess what? I'm wearing a fucking white-ass dress and I'm just going to be playing this piano. And you're going to you're gonna try to overtake me. Hell no. And she's looking like super defiant with every note she hits. It's really, it's a great scene. Yes, and it's and it's just sort of like that moment where, again, Vienna is calling the shots. And, you know, like I said, all hell breaks loose. You know, there's a, there's a lot of action, a lot of, like, classic sort of Western scenarios of, like, you know, the hideouts and, you know, the sort of, like, the, the gang that's, you know, slowly sort of deciding whether or not they want to continue on with this dancing kid and then, like, the love triangle, the whole thing. But, I mean, the reason why this movie is just so near and dear to me is because of just this gender role reversal of the entire fucking thing, right? Mm -hmm. The women are in charge. They're leading the men. They're, I mean, there are many parts in this movie where characters say, you know, there are lines of dialogue where they're like, wow, she's like more of a man than a woman, but you know what? Like, I respect that. Or like, you know, there's like her, Vienna's like workers in her saloon or like, you know, hell, hell, I love that she's in charge. Like, it's great. I mean, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Classic Hollywood. Are you serious? It's incredible. It's so nice. It is. It's, it's wonderful to see. And I think they've cast it perfectly. And, you know, Joan Crawford is so tough in this movie. And, you know, she also displays some of her vulnerabilities, but not constantly and not often. Yeah. Um, and she basically is just like, I'm telling it how it is, and you can either be part of it or not. But if you're going to keep working here, then you're going to have to fucking spin that roulette wheel because I like to hear it while I'm kicking out somebody who wants to try to kill me. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not going to, I mean, obviously I'm not giving anything away maybe if I if I say this, but the fucking women are killing dudes. Like, they're yeah. killing dudes, using guns, killing dudes. There is no, you know, sensitivity behind that. Um, it's incredible. And I, it, like I said, for this era, for the genre, it's just so incredibly fresh. I mean, in terms of our theme this week, it is, she is the CEO of the West. She is the cunt in charge of saloon, of the town, of whatever. And it's a big, bright... 50s color western and I mean it's just so entertaining and if you haven't seen it I really hope you will because it's near and dear to my heart so I loved it I'm so glad you picked it I think I, I agree so much with what you've said and just watching a woman on screen be this evocative and powerful and you know the time frame that they're discussing and the time frame it was filmed in like it was just really I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't expect that. It was really cool to see. Well, cool. Yeah. I mean, listen, we have been wanting to do this theme forever, ever since we decided on what it would be called. And, you know, I, I was so happy to watch these two movies back to back. I mean, they're just, to me, they're just absolute classics. And I think it was great to have this discussion about this lady boss, about the, about the concept of the woman who is in charge and what that might look like in film. And I agree. Good fun episode. I agree. Do you want to tell them what the next episode is? Oh, what hell. the movies are at least? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Are y'all ready um, for our next episode? The movies are 
Against All Odds from 1984 and Vision Quest from 1985. The theme is not the mid-80s. No, yeah, it's not 84, 85. That's not the theme. But listen, if you want to email us, we are at isawhatyoudidpod at gmail.com. And you can always find us on our socials. We are at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, uh, give us a five-star review. Do all that stuff. Um, we Our P.O. box has been popping. Let me just say, we've been getting like really cute little pieces of art. It's really sweet. Um, And yeah, our P.O. box is tucked into our Instagram Linktree page. So like, check it out if you have um, like physical mail. But yeah, other than that, Danielle, as always, it's a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Always a pleasure. Can't wait till next time. See you guys soon. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.